All right, so as we talked last time, Paul was looking at the person of Christ and the relationship that he had with Christ and how that was more valuable to him than anything else. And there are some truths about that that can really be a benefit to us as we spend time in our, in our Bibles in the morning with the Lord. What we're going to do is we're going to look down at verses uh, 18 through 21. And Paul, again, is talking to the same audience. He's still speaking to the church in Philippi. And uh, he says in verse 18, Many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So he's introducing a kind of person, and a person that is surrounding the people in Philippi, um, who are very different than the kind of man that Paul describes in verses 7 through 11. The guy who wants to know Christ, and who wants to be patterned after Christ, and who wants to be found in him, having a righteousness not of his own. So Paul begins by talking about this other kind of person who's an enemy of Christ in verse 18. And then he gives a description of that person in verse 19, and he describes them in a few ways here. He says, their end is destruction. That's where they're headed. Their God is their appetite. So uh, what drives them, what controls them, what rules over them is what they want. And then he says, their glory is in their shame. It's the kind of person who revels in the things that, that God hates and God abhors. And most notably, this is the kind of person who sets their mind on earthly things. They can't look up and see God and worship God and praise God because of what they see. Instead, the only thing they can see is the things in front of them that appeal to them. But where we want to turn here is, is verses 20 and 21. There's some things that can really, really help us here as we think about our own prayer life and our own time reading our Bibles. Paul says, for, and he's making a contrast here between verses 18 and 19 and verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is, it is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes what it is that, that Christ will do in the future. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So he's got this picture in mind of what Christ is going to do in the future. And Paul is describing the kind of person um, that is not like the person in verses 18 and 19. And this person has a citizenship that is not here in this world. Our citizenship is not here. And so the implications of that is that we're going to be a person who's different than the guy that's described in verses 18 and 19. And particularly, we don't set our mind on earthly things. So when we're reading our Bibles, we want the Lord to help us live out something that's consistent with who we are that our citizenship is in heaven. And I found it really helpful to remind myself of this when I sit down to read my Bible because I've got a day full of activity in front of me. It, it used to be work, and I've got lots of demands there. Now, these days, it's other kinds of demands that are important and pressing. Um, but it's important for me to remember my citizenship is in heaven, and the believer is one who eagerly waits for their Savior. And... Paul talks about what Christ does and what Christ will do when he returns. And he's talking about the bodily resurrection of believers, that believers will be raised from the dead and their, their nature will be transformed to be just like Christ's. Christ will live forever and the believer will as well. He talks about the humble state of our body right now, which is what we have, a body that's getting older and getting weaker and 
getting more frail and less capable. And he's going to say what Christ will do is he will bring us into conformity with his body. The kind of body that does not fade away, it does not perish, it will last forever. And he will do this by the exertion of the power that he has been given by God to subject all things to himself. And so the important thing there that's really helpful for us when we read our Bibles in the morning is to realize that as we read our Bibles, we are doing something that is really, really helpful for us. And that is that we are reminding ourselves that our citizenship is not here. We're reminding ourselves that there's a world beyond what we see when we look horizontally. And what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for the return of Christ. And we're thinking with an eternal perspective. So one of the really good things about our time in in the Word in the morning is that it reminds us that the the perspective that that wants to dominate our minds um, is not the the perspective that we need to have. What wants to dominate our minds is, is the immediate. And sometimes the immediate is really, really important because we've got important things to do today. Um, But our citizenship is in heaven. And so one thing that's really helpful when you're reading your Bibles is just to remind yourself, this is not my home. This is not my citizenship. It's not my identity. My identity is a permanent one that will take place in the future. And so I read my Bible and I I pray and I engage with the Lord to prepare myself for that, to remind myself of these truths. Sometimes that's really helpful for me because there are things that are very pressing in our lives. There are things that are weighing heavily upon us. At the end of the day, we just remember verse 20, what what Paul says is that all of these things will come to an end one day and our citizenship is in heaven and we will be there with Christ one day. So that's an encouragement to you. I hope that helps you just to, to refresh your mind when you sit down and read your Bibles, whether it's in the morning or in the evening. Remind yourself that your citizenship is not here. And that reading your Bibles and and communicating with the Lord through prayer is something that will help you remind yourself of that and make that more real to you every day. It will help you um, gain more of a vertical perspective in the way you view the world. And it will help you prepare for Christ when he does come again. This morning we're going to be talking about your heart and your doctrine. This is a good lesson that just helps us remember what the foundation for clear biblical thinking is. So let's make sure that uh, we go before the Lord and ask him to help us before we get started. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word. And Lord, your word is truth and your word sanctifies us. Lord, I'm thankful for the discussion groups that just took place, men sharing their hearts and their thoughts. Oh Lord, we pray that you would use those words, those conversations to strengthen us, to build us up in our faith uh, so that we would be useful in your kingdom purposes. Lord, I pray that you would help us now. Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would grant clarity. You would allow me to speak in ways that accurately represent your heart so that when we leave here this morning, Lord, we will be that much more equipped to be useful to you. And I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, today we are going to look for at five strategies for guarding your heart and your doctrine. And we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn there and uh, we'll go from there. All right, we're going to be talking today about the relationship between your doctrine and the condition of your heart. And when I say doctrine, what I mean is what you believe and what you profess, um, what you teach, whether it's in your home, whether it's in NGM, whether it's in your small group in some capacity, or or whether you stand here 
and preach to a church every Sunday morning. Um, doctrine is what you do when you're communicating in those ways. What we're going to see is there is a relationship between those things, um, what you profess, what you teach, what you believe, and the condition of your heart. And we don't normally see a relationship here. We're not normally inclined to, to see the relationship between over here your doctrine and over here your heart. But scripture actually tells us that there is one. Um, we're normally inclined to think that what we need to do is we need to be reading the right parts of our Bible, which is all of it. We need to be reading the right books. We need to be listening to the right communicators on blogs. Uh, we need to be doing all of those things. And we need to make sure we understand that those things are important. Um, it's important to have the right information in your mind and in your heart. But those things don't actually preserve the good doctrine in your heart. Good doctrine by itself is not a prescription for maintaining good doctrine. But we'll see that maintaining good doctrine is a function of the condition of your heart. So we know that Paul is writing to Timothy, and we know that Paul was the founder of the church that's in Ephesus, but Timothy is now their pastor. He's their pastor, and Paul is writing to him, and he's giving him instructions on how it is that Timothy should be leading that church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump ahead to the middle of the letter, to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and we'll see that. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, and I'm hoping to come to you soon. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth. So Paul's heart here is to provide Timothy with clear guidance as to how the church in Ephesus should operate. Notice that he says how one ought to conduct himself. So Paul's heart there is he's speaking to everybody. Everybody who hears this letter being read to them knows how they should function in the church. And so you'd think that in the letter, Paul would get right down to it. He'd spend the first couple of verses introducing himself, and then he'd get right after the business of telling him how to run the church. Okay, Timothy, here's what you need to do. But if you read chapter 1, you see something really, really interesting. You start in verse 3. And Paul starts by giving warnings about certain kinds of men. Drop down to verse 9, and Paul gets to be autobiographical about himself. And then in verse 20, he's warning again about two men in particular, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so he's not exactly using the first chapter to explain to Timothy how they should function in the church. When you get to chapter 2 and you read verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men and for kings and all of those in authority. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is where Paul starts to talk to Timothy about how to actually function in the church. But Paul has to actually address removing false teachers at first. He spends an entire chapter leading up to before he gets to the real discussion in chapter 2. He has to spend a time um, explaining how important it is to remove false teaching from the church before he gets to the business of talking about how the church itself can run. And the reason why that is true is because false teaching will undo any kind of other teaching, no matter how good it is. You can have the best teaching right here in your pulpit on Sunday mornings, um, but any other false teaching spread throughout the church occurring at other times will erode that and it will undo that good teaching. 
And we see how important this is, how imperative this is. When we go back to chapter 3, Paul is saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you soon. And he says, but in case I am delayed, in verse 15, I'm writing so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. But he's saying, I'm coming to you soon. And he says at the end of verse 15, you will know how to conduct yourself in the church of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul has plans to get to Timothy, but the warnings and the instructions about the false teachers are so important that he's going to send them ahead. They need that. They need to be addressed immediately. And look at how Paul describes the church. He says, the church is the church of the living God, and it's the pillar and the support of the truth. So the church is what actually demonstrates that God is alive. So when we're here this morning and we're functioning, we're talking, we're visiting, we're encouraging, we're getting to know one another, we're speaking truth to one another, that's how we prove that God is alive, because we're the church of the living God. But it's also the pillar and the support of the truth. We uphold the truth of the gospel as we interact with one another on on a biblical basis. So that's what the function of the church is, and, and no other organization, no other organism has this charter. It's the church's job to actually do these things. And it's not the job of some teaching ministry outside of the church. It's not the job of a seminary outside of the church or some blogger outside of the church. It's the job of the church to demonstrate that God is alive. And it's the job of the church to uphold the truth. And so with such a high calling, uh, the church simply cannot tolerate false teaching within itself. So that has to be removed. And so that's why Paul says this. And he's saying to Timothy, you know, there's lots of important things in your church, but one of the most important things you need to do is be on guard for false teachers. And he tells Timothy how to do that in verses 3 through 7. And not surprisingly, a ton of it has to do with your heart. So let's read the passage together, and then we'll talk about five ways to guard your heart and your doctrine. So he introduces the letter in verses 1 and 2, and then he says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So that's our passage. And what was happening in Ephesus was there were men who were pursuing doctrinal clarity without a purity of heart. And that was dangerous in the church. So Paul has five strategies to guard your heart and your doctrine at the same time. And the first is to abandon other teaching. And we see that in verse 3. Paul says, As I urged you, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And what's in view here are not um, things that are some wild, bizarre idea that the earth is flat. It's not some conspiracy theory theory and it's it's not some obsession with something that isn't true it's actually something that's strange and the word for for strange here in the greek is hetero or other 
It's something you don't find in your Bibles. It's something that's not affirmed by your Old Testament and your New Testament together. Paul is saying that unbiblical teaching will destroy our church, so abandon it. So we need to be wise and discerning and understanding in where we recognize this. We need to be listening for this. We need to be able to discern it when it's spoken. So we need to understand our Bibles and be reading our Bibles. So when we hear something that's extra biblical and contrary to Scripture, we know to abandon it. So that's Paul's first point. It's a short point. It's a brief point, but it's pretty powerful that we need to abandon other teaching. That's not saying that there are really good things that we can hear from other people that are outside of the context of Scripture that relate to other areas of life. But as it relates to who you are before God, what your charter is before God, how it is that man comes into a right relationship with God, we have to abandon anything in that vein that's contrary to what is taught in Scripture. So that's our first point. We want to make sure that we abandon um, false teaching, other teaching. And then Paul moves on and he talks about speculative theology and how it needs to be ignored. So there's something that needs to be abandoned, but there's also something that needs to be ignored. And he says in verse 4, nor pay attention to myths, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So he's saying, It's not don't teach, it's not just don't teach, but he's saying don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. And we'll get to talking about what those things are are in a bit here, but first we're going to talk about um, what it means to be speculative. And speculation is things that really can't be proven, things that don't have a basis in fact, things that can't be concluded decisively from what you have. And particularly what Paul is getting at here, he's getting at using the Bible to say things that can't be concluded from the text of Scripture itself. And what Paul is not talking about here is a man who differs from what we would teach in this church on minor areas of theology, or even on other areas. But it's just he's a good man, he's faithful to God's Word, he's consistent with his use of God's Word, but he just doesn't land where we do on, on some areas of theology. He's not talking about that, or a guy is faithful to the word, but he just comes down in a different place on a number of issues. What he's speaking about here is a person who is given to speculation, given to take what scripture says and then extend it beyond what God intended it to do and what God intended to say. And one place currently that where that's a very big issue is the issue of man being created in the image of God and conclusions that we need to draw from that. So what I want to do is is just give a brief example of that and ask us to turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll take a look at what God intends for man being created in his image, and then we'll give an example of what speculation looks like and what it looks like to go beyond what God intended. We're going to look at verses 26 and 28 of Genesis 1. And this is, of course, where God is creating man, and he's giving man instruction on what to do, having been created. In verse 26, God says, Let us... The triune Godhead, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. So we as a triune God are going to make man in our image and our purpose is that they will rule. And then in verse 28, we see God instructing man in that way. And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish 
and the birds and every other living thing. So what is not speculation is that man is created in the image of God. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that. There's no debate. Also, there's no debate about what God created man for. He says it has everything to do with dominion over the earth in a way that represents his character. God is the ruler. And so God has created man to represent his character by ruling over his creation. There's no speculation in that whatsoever. You can conclude that very clearly from what God says in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. But here's what's speculative. What's speculative is what you don't find in your Bible here. And what happens today is is people obligate the church based on things that are not contained in Scripture, but using the idea that man is created in God's image. Obligating men and women to do things that were not part of God's intent in saying that man is created in his image. So, for example, in the last couple of years, movements have come out and blogs have come out and people have come out to say that churches must provide amenities for the public. They must provide free parking. They must provide community services. And they must do that because we're all created in the image of God. And then they go beyond that and they'll say, Well, if you don't provide those amenities to your community, then nothing else in your theology is worth listening to. That's an example of speculation. That's an example of going beyond what God intended with what he said, but it's using one of God's properties of what he said man was for and going beyond that. So Paul is saying, don't pay attention to those things. And the deception in that can be really, really subtle. If we go back to our passage and we look at verses 6 and 7, we see that the people actually have their Bibles open when they're doing this. In verse 6, you see that there are men who are doing this. And in verse 7, you see that they want to be teachers of the law. So they have their Bibles open when they're doing this, but they're misusing Scripture to do that. And Paul talks about two kinds of ways in which men misuse this. He talks about myths, and he talks about genealogies. We'll mention myths briefly, but then spend a little more time on genealogies. There were men who were promoting myths. They were things that simply were not true. They had no basis, in fact. They had no reason to come to that conclusion. And then there were men that were getting lost in genealogies. And when we have our Bibles, we know that genealogies are all over our Bible. You see two of them in Genesis. You see one in Genesis chapter 5, and you see another one in Genesis chapter 10. And they're both very important. God gives the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 to show how you get from Adam to Noah. You can conclude that there was a a clear timeline of how to get from Adam to Noah. There's even a number of years that are mentioned and listed with each of the ten generations between them, showing the age of each man when his son was born and how long that man lived after having his son. And so there was a really important reason for the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And likewise, there was a very important reason for the genealogy in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 is the origins of the nations. And Moses was writing this genealogy to the nation of Israel as they were in the wilderness. And they were preparing to go into the promised land. So they needed to understand the origin of the nations that they were going to be conquering and dispossessing from the land. That was a really good reason for a genealogy. You want to understand the timeline of this earth and the people that were involved, the significant people. You want to understand these people that you're going in to conquer. There's another genealogy, and you probably notice this every year if you've got a reading plan. You get to First Chronicles, 
and you find that the first eight chapters of First Chronicles is committed to the genealogy of Israel. And they describe the descendants of all of the tribes in Israel. And it is pretty tough going to read through those eight chapters in your reading plan and say, Lord, what am I to get out of this? But if you put yourself in the context of the original audience of it, you see the importance of it. When you realize that that First Chronicles was written after the exile, and it was written to the people who had returned from Babylon, and it was written to Judah, and God was providing them with clear, direct proof that God was still going to be faithful to his promise to fulfill the seed promise in the Messiah through the tribe of Judah. They had been taken away from Israel into captivity. They lived there 70 years, and some of the people came back. And they came back with all of their baggage from the place that they lived for 70 years in Babylon. And most of those people didn't even know how to read Hebrew anymore. They were reading Aramaic because that's where they grew up and that's where they lived for 70 years. And God gives this massive genealogy so that they would know you still are my people, and I am going to be faithful to my promise to give a Messiah from your tribe. Those are good uses for genealogies. But you look at what Paul is writing to when he talks about these genealogies. There's a modifier right before the word genealogies, and that's endless. And what Paul is not talking about there is a very, very long genealogy that just goes forever and ever. What he's talking about there is conversation that just circulates and circulates and has no real end. The conversation just keeps going and going and going. There's a difference on one hand, talking about a truth that is so rich and so deep that you could spend your whole life talking about that. Paul's not talking about that. What he's talking about is the other hand, where something that is so lacking in truth and so lacking in purpose that you can talk about it all day long and not get anywhere and not really decide anything. And John Calvin has a really good conclusion, a really good summary about this this kind of person. uh, Calvin writes that Paul calls these genealogies endless because vain curiosity, vain curiosity has no limit. And it continually falls from one labyrinth to another labyrinth. So you enter into one room and you talk about that forever and you really get nowhere. So you enter into another labyrinth of names and relationships and you really don't get anywhere there because you're missing the main point of them and they never lead to anything sufficient and never lead to any truth. And so Paul's counsel is get away from those things. Get away from the myths that are not true. Don't be a part of those things. And don't be a part of endless genealogies and by extension anything that doesn't have a point or a purpose that fits within God's word for scripture. So this is why we need to know our Bibles. We need to know why those things are there so we can recognize what is fruitful conversation about those passages and what is not fruitful conversation about those passages. So guys, cling to Scripture in your conversations with one another. When you're giving encouragement to a a brother because he's had a hard week, make sure your encouragement is rooted in Scripture. When you're comforting a brother, same thing. Bring truth from Scripture. When you're exhorting a brother, this is so important. Come with the truth of Scripture. Bring it winsomely, but bring it authoritatively because it's true from Scripture. So Paul talks about two things that you really need to guard against. Abandon other teaching and ignore this speculative theology. That's what we're not supposed to do. And then he talks about things that we are to do. And we see that at the end of verse 4. 
furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So you've got this idea of this administration of God, and that needs to be furthered. And what an administration is, is it's how you run something. We know that. There's an administration. It oversees how something is run. And here what Paul is talking about with Timothy is how the church in Ephesus is going to be run, and particularly how it stewards what God has given to them. And there were four entities that God has given to the church and he's given to any believer and any church consists of believers. And we're going to walk through those, each of those four. We see that in verse 5. The goal of our instruction is involving four things. It involves love and then it involves three things that produce that love. A pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so what Paul is talking about here is stewardship that aims at love. You're to love, and Paul is primarily speaking there about love between members of the body of Christ for one another. We know 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And he who loves God loves his brother. He who doesn't love God doesn't love his brother. It's a particular love here. It's a love for one another, and it's a love that's based on three things. It's a love that flows out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the first thing we need to understand about how to guard and how to be a good steward of what God has given to us is that we need to love one another. Every time you get together in conversations, whether it's, it's here or whether it's here on Sunday or whether it's in your small group or whatever else, your aim is to demonstrate and to love one another well. And Paul has three ways that we do that. And the first is that it's a love that's sourced in purity. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. It's not just love that floats out on its own. It's love that comes from a pure heart. And that's a pretty high bar. When I think about a pure heart, I think of a bar that's way above me. But Paul is not talking about perfection here. Purity and perfection are not the same thing. What Paul is talking about here is a heart that is always brought into alignment with God's truth. Our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and our affections, that we're constantly about bringing those into alignment with God's truth. When God, through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit in our lives, makes us aware of how it is that we're departing in one of those areas, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, or our affections, The one who loves well and the one who is aiming at purity brings those thoughts into alignment with God's truth. So all of these things need to be pure so that you can love well. And there's an example here or a parallel idea that has to do with wisdom. Paul's talking here about love, but I want us to turn to James chapter 3 and see that wisdom also requires the same kind of purity. James is writing with an awful lot of wisdom. We're going to go to the end of chapter 3. And at the beginning of chapter 4, James is talking about how people are failing in their relationships with one another. There's quarreling, there's disputes, there's people taking other people's lives. But at the end of chapter 3, James gives a picture of, of what it looks like when brothers live together rightly. In particular, in verse 17, he's talking about what wisdom actually looks like in a person's life. Wisdom from above is first pure. 
And then he gives seven other characteristics of the man who is wise. So firstly, it's pure. Then it's peaceable. Then it's gentle. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. So first of all, it's pure. At the back end of the list, it's a man without hypocrisy. So there's no wisdom without purity. There's no wisdom with hypocrisy. So wisdom works the same way that love does. Um, The foundation for wisdom is purity first and a bunch of other things. The foundation for loving one another is purity as well. So if you want to love others well, live a pure life privately so that when you get together, you're actually able to love one another well. So the second undergirding thing for loving well is goodness. It's sourced in goodness. The goal of our instruction is a good conscience. And a good conscience is a conscience that is functioning properly. It's functioning the way God designed it to function. Before we look closely at the conscience, we're going to take a look at the man that's described in chapter 4. So flip ahead a couple chapters to chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says in verse 1, The Spirit says that in later times some will fall away from the truth. They're going to fall away by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And look what he says in verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, they are seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron. So we want to take hold of there is the idea that a conscience can actually be seared. So let's take a look at how the conscience works, and we'll get a picture of and an understanding of what it means to have a good conscience versus having a seared conscience. So God has equipped every single believer with a conscience. We all know this. And here's how it works. A believer notices an opportunity for sin. They're going along. They're they're going through their day. They've read their Bible. They're praying. They're maintaining a close relationship with the Lord. They're, They're involved in good relationships with other people. They're living a fruitful life. And along comes an opportunity for sin. And the man knows it's sin because he's been reading his Bible and his Bible tells him that is sinful. His good conscience informs him of the sinfulness of that opportunity. This is sinful. We know this. This is how it works. And so the man responds to that warning by fleeing the context, by avoiding the context, by turning from the opportunity and pursuing and running hard after what is good. And when he does that, his conscience remains good. It's even strengthened. And it functions properly. And it's working well because he's kept himself from that sin. And so the next time that opportunity for sin comes along, his conscience works even better than it did the last time. It speaks an even stronger message. And the man listens to that message, and he's bolstered and he's strengthened. And pretty soon, he's doing really, really well in that area because he's been listening to his conscience. This is how a man damages his conscience. And the interesting thing is it starts the same way. The man's doing things like he's supposed to be doing. He's reading his Bible. He's listening to others and he's interacting with others well. He's praying. And along comes an opportunity for sin. And he knows it's sin because he's reading his Bible and his Bible tells him this is sinful. And his good conscience informs him that that opportunity itself is sinful. So his conscience is telling him, this is sinful. But here's where it departs. And where it departs is how the man responds. He responds to his conscience by ignoring his conscience. 
And he doesn't flee. He doesn't run after what is good. Instead, he runs after the sin itself. And by doing that, his conscience becomes weak. His conscience is is less able to function well and have a good influence over him. Such that the next time he comes into that same opportunity for sin, his conscience still speaks to him, but it doesn't speak as loudly or as strongly because his conscience is now weakened. And so he has less working with him to to lead him away from that sin. He's more inclined to run after that sin. And in all likelihood, he probably does run after that sin. Having already run after it once, it's easier to run after it the second time. And eventually, his conscience becomes so weak that the man just runs after the sin as if he had no conscience at all. His conscience barely functions in that area of his life. He runs into sin without recognizing the gravity of it, without feeling the weight of it, without thinking about the implications or the consequences of it. He just runs after it. And that's what's referred to as a seared conscience, a conscience that can no longer reach us because it's been damaged so hard and so badly by by ongoing sin. So if you want to maintain uh, a good love for others, maintain a good conscience so that when you speak to people and you speak about truth, you can do so from a position of integrity. So when your brother is struggling with something, If you've been maintaining a good conscience, you can look him in the eye and you can love him and say, brother, I love you and let me pray with you. Let me bring you a word from scripture and you can move forward really, really well. Your brother knows that you love him. You just can't do it the same way if you're not working from a clear conscience and a good conscience. So the way you can love your brother well is to have a good conscience. And the third way that we love well is love that comes from sincerity. It's sourced in sincerity. And Paul says at the end of verse 5, the goal of our instruction is a sincere faith. The idea here is a faith that is without hypocrisy. What this tells us is that you can actually have faith, but you can have that faith together with hypocrisy. It's not a sincere faith. And so we want to think carefully about what faith is. And when we think about what faith is, uh, Hebrews 11 comes to mind. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Just flip over there real quick. Uh, The author of Hebrews is really helpful in, in clarifying for us what faith is. He says, faith is, and this is so good that we know what it is, because our New Testaments are talking about faith all over the place, and our New Testament actually tells us what it is. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things not seen. And then it's really helpful to read verse 2. For by it the men of old gained approval. That helps us understand a little bit about faith. Men of old were looking forward to future revelation. They were looking forward to revelation about Jesus. They were looking forward to revelation about Jesus, the man. And they were looking forward to revelation about Jesus, the Messiah. So they needed to understand on one hand that that he was the Lamb of God and on the other hand that he was the Messiah. And they were looking forward to both of those things. Today, when we think about Jesus the Lamb, we're looking backwards because we're 2,500 years later than the men of the Old Testament. But we're still looking forward to Messiah Jesus. So the Old Testament, the the men of old, they just didn't realize that they were looking forward to two separate events that were going to be separated in time by such a large period. But they were still looking at Jesus, the Messiah, and Jesus, the Lamb. So the assurance of things hoped for is the assurance that Jesus truly is 
the Messiah, that he's coming, that he's coming back. A sincere faith is one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's Messiah and that he will return to this earth to rule on this earth and put everything in the condition that God originally intended to be in. And then a sincere faith is a a faith that understands Jesus rightly as the Lamb of God, the only means by which man can be reconciled to a holy God through an atoning sacrifice of that Lamb on the cross. So we can only love others well when we understand Jesus rightly in those ways. So a person's profession that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Lamb are essential for us to love others well. But we need to do that with sincerity. We can't just have those professions. We have to actually live our life according to those affections, uh, those, those things that we're asserting. So if I truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, if I truly believe that he's the Lord, do I submit to his lordship in my life today? So we're able to love our brothers well when our faith matches with our actions that actually demonstrate that we do submit to the lordship of the Christ that we declare is the Lord. And so we ask ourselves, how do I evaluate my faith? I can evaluate myself, but it's very helpful just to use our interactions with others and the understanding that others have of us as it relates to our faith. We can ask ourselves, is the impression that other people have of me consistent with what I know I am truly like. That doesn't mean that I expose every single flaw of my life to my brother. We would wear one another out if we did that. But what Paul is talking about here is a man who presents himself accurately to his brothers. A man who, in his interactions with one another, explains to his brothers that he's pursuing the Lord, and that he's a fallen creature, and that he's repenting, and here's what the repentance looks like. We do that informally at this church in our conversations all the time. We do it somewhat formally in core questions in small groups where we get a chance to talk about what our prayer life looks like, what our Bible reading looks like, what our repentance from sin looks like. So we just ask ourselves, do other people understand me the way that I know myself to be true? That can help us understand if we are living with a sincere faith. We also want to look at something that Paul mentions in verse 6 that helps us understand this. There's an active part in this and there's a passive part in this. And Paul says, after he writes verse 5, okay, we need to love from these three things. He says, some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. I want us to look at the idea of straying and the idea of turned aside. It's very important for us to understand that one of these verbs is in the active voice. And that's straying. A man intentionally strays. He says, here's what I know I need to be doing. And actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over here. And he does that by his own free will. And he runs in this direction, even though scripture says, you need to run after good things. So that's active. So a man actively strays. But the the wording for turned aside actually is passive. It's more of a passive idea here. And, and what that is getting to here is that the, the, the turning aside actually is what happens to the man. So the idea is that when a man actively strays, he becomes a man who is turned aside. Turning aside happens inside of him. It just is a natural outcome of not running after the things of God. And so Paul's point here is your doctrine doesn't stand a chance if you're living an impure life. If you're not living a life that's pure, if you're not living with a clear conscience, if 
you're not living with a sincere faith, what will take place, if you're intentionally not pursuing those things, what will take place is a turning aside that will happen to you. And so there's no shortage, if we look around, of men who were at one time really good Bible teachers. They were good authors. They were good speakers at conferences. They had an audience. They had a following. People were buying their books. They're the source of good counsel. They give great sermons. And sometime later, they end up with really bad teaching. They start out really, really well. They're doing really great. You read their book and you go, that book was a blessing to me. And 20 years later, you read that that person just dropped off a cliff and you don't want to be reading their material. You don't want to be listening to what they say. You don't want to be sitting under their teaching. We can understand from God's word how it is that a person gets to be that way. And what we have here is is clear guidance for that. It's a person who, over time, does not actually pay attention carefully in these areas. They don't have the the integrity of character to pursue one another, to love one another well from from faith and sincerity and all of those things. They, They don't actually live those things out. We're not talking here about somebody who has some poor doctrine we're not talking about a person who um, his doctrine is, is bad. We're talking here about a person who, who actually never was a believer. But they were in the church and they were skilled and they were cunning and they were able to introduce false teaching in the church. And it had its roots in their own willingness to be permissible with their own life. Their own willingness to extend beyond God's design for how a man should live. So your doctrine really does depend on the purity of your heart. And this goes beyond our ministry. It relates to our own standing before God. So the way to ensure that you'll be able to have confidence at the end of your life, that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven, is to live a pure life today and to live a pure life tomorrow and the day after that. Now, Because the one who perseveres in saving faith and endures in that saving faith is the one who will be saved. And so that's why in Build we emphasize the heart as much as we do. And we're going to be here for 12 more Saturdays this year after this. And, and the, the focus on most of it is going to be the heart. We're going to move into the other disciplines as well. But we want people to understand that the heart is the most important thing. It's the foundation. Because that's what flows into your home. That's what flows into your service here. That's what makes you a man who's well qualified to be considered for deacon service, formal service in the church. And uh, that's what drives your hermeneutic, is is a clear heart, and a clean heart before the Lord. Paul offers two other points of of observation that we need to see, and those are in verse 7. And Paul says, you know, what we need to do here is we need to temper our strong desires. The way we guard our heart and our doctrine is we temper our strong desires. I mentioned this earlier, uh, verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law. Paul is identifying a particular person who who wants to be a teacher of the law. And the Greek word there talks about wishing, an earnest, strong wish. It's something that really drives a man. The emphasis here is is not just being a teacher, but being a teacher in a prominent position. Being a teacher in a position where, where you have a following. And it's not so much a concern about a desire to communicate the truth, but to have a platform from which you can communicate They're not really content with communicating biblical truth. What they really crave is to do so from a really public, visible platform. 
And this tends to occur more often in young men than older men. Older men tend to be able to look back on their life and they, they see themselves accurately and they see themselves rightly. But the man that's in view here is the man who doesn't really have a whole lot of soundness to his thoughts. He doesn't have a lot of good thoughts. He doesn't have a lot of deep thoughts of his own. But he's in all the forums and he's communicating and he's responding, but he's not really saying anything too sound. We just want to make sure that we have a, a really sober awareness of what comes with notoriety and what comes with a following. Um, and the best way to do that is to look around you and just see people in this church. Many times they're older men, sometimes they're younger men as well. And they are equipped with really excellent theological foundation. Uh, they know their Bibles really, really well. They live a clean life and their family life shows it. They have fruitful ministry. They give generously. Um, you'd never know it from the way that they present themselves, but they're just a really, really solid guy because they don't have this big presence about themselves, but quietly they just go about serving with excellence and integrity in everything they do. It just isn't that important to them to be visible and to be in front of everybody. They just go about living a life that's totally devoted to the Lord, and they do it really, really well. The guy doesn't have the impression that he has a whole lot going for him, but then you have a conversation with him, and you find out that his questions are really well-founded in Scripture. His care for you, his love for you, his encouragement of you, he's trustworthy, he's compassionate, he's kind. And you realize this guy is a real asset to the church. He's a fruitful vessel. He's an asset to the church. So Paul is talking about the, the kind of man who's content to ignore all of the attractions and just pursue being a faithful instrument in God's hands. And he's also talking about how important it is to gain doctrinal clarity. And you keep reading in verse 7 and you see this. He's talking about the person who does not understand either what they're saying or about the the matters about which they care, they make confident assertions. And what's happening here is the man's ambition is running ahead of his ability. His ambition is running ahead of his ability. He's so deficient in his character that he's willing to step out and teach even though his foundation isn't real strong. And his character is weak not because he's limited in his understanding, but because his unbridled desire makes him impatient in the, quick, the equipping process. He's not willing to do the hard work that's required to actually be equipped well. He just wants to stand up and be useful uh, without trying to make sure that he's well equipped to be useful well. There's everything right about being useful and being useful in, in the right area, but this is talking about the specific man who wants to handle the word without being um, going through the hard work of being useful and, and being equipped well with it. So the bottom line here is that we need to run after holiness of life while continuing to equip yourself. And then with those two things, look for opportunities to serve and be useful. So that's the way in which Paul is talking about how we can protect and guard the purity of our doctrine. It's by having a pure heart. So there are a couple of implications for us. Um, One of them is... When you're involved with, in a relationship with anybody, um, a brother who's speaking into your life, you're speaking into their life, you have some depth of relationship with them. Um, if there's ongoing sin in your life, talk to them about it. As soon as you're aware of it, it's actually a really good thing. That promotes holiness of life. That person can encourage you and speak truth into your life. 
Um, and when he does that, that encourages you in your fight against sin. So confess your sin to one another. Also ask other people to speak into your life. Open the door to somebody and say, you know, uh, I'm walking in my relationship with the Lord. I'm reading my Bible. I'm, I'm growing. I'm praying. I'm, I'm trying to be pleasing to the Lord by his grace and all that I do. But if you see things in my life that um, it's not just a one-off, but it's a pattern that you see and you notice, please feel free to talk to me about that because I'm blind. There's areas of my life that I can't see and I, I need your perspective. I need you to build me up. So invite other people to speak into your life. And when they do, be ready. Be ready to receive it well. And then thirdly, just continue to expose yourself to sound teaching. Uh, Hopefully the teaching you get here is sound teaching. Um, And whatever else you listen to, make sure you're exposing yourself to sound teaching. Um, there There is no doubt that over the course of time, there is a profound impact that sound teaching will have on your life. And likewise, there is a profound teaching that unsound impact will have on your life. So those things are encouragements for us. Uh, They're ways that in doing this, we can be guarding our own doctrine. And in so doing, we can be building up the church. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these men. I thank you that they are here this morning. I thank you, Lord, that they are willing instruments in your hands. I pray for them and I pray for myself. Lord, that we would be men who understand the relationship between what we believe and how we live. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to us where we're doing well so that we can thank you and praise you for your enabling grace in those areas. I pray likewise, Lord, that your spirit would make us aware of those areas where we can grow, areas where we can turn from sin, areas and practices or patterns of sin that are that are present in our lives that we can put away. Lord, so that we can hold more fastly to the truth and then live it out and be useful to you. Lord, I pray for us this day as we head into our weekend. Uh, Whatever it is we have going, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do it by your grace. And I pray in Christ's name.